Section 6 of The Myths of the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sayed. The Myths of the New World by Daniel Brinton. Chapter 2, Part 2. Innumerable mysterious forces are in activity around the child of nature. He feels within him something that tells him they are not of his kind, and yet not altogether different from him. He sums them up in one word drawn from sensuous experience. Does he wish to express still more forcibly this sentiment? He doubles the word, or prefixes an adjective, or adds an affix, as the genius of his language may dictate. But it still remains to him but an unapplied abstraction, a mere category of thought, a frame for the all. It is never the object of veneration or sacrifice. No myth brings it down to his comprehension. It is not installed in his temples. Man cannot escape the belief that behind all form is one essence, but the moment he would seize and define it, it eludes his grasp and by a sorcery more sadly ludicrous than that which blinded Titania, he worships not the infinite he thinks, but a base idol of his own making. As in the Zendavesta, behind the eternal struggle of Ormuzd and Araman, looms up the undisturbed and infinite Zeruana Ikarana, as in the pages of the Greek poets we here and there catch glimpses of a Zeus, who is not he throned on Olympus, nor he who takes part in the wrangles of the gods, but stands far off and alone, one yet all, who was, who is, who will be. So the belief in an unseen spirit, who asks neither supplication nor sacrifice, who, as the natives of Texas told Judel in 1684, does not concern himself about things here below, who has no name to call him by and has never a figure in mythology, was doubtless occasionally present to their minds. It was present not more, but far less distinctly, and often not at all, in the more savage tribes. And no assertion can be more contrary to the laws of religious progress than that which pretends that a purer and more monotheistic religion exists among nations devoid of mythology. There are only two instances on the American continent where the worship of an immaterial god was definitely instituted and these as the highest conquests of American natural religions deserve a special mention. They occurred, as we might expect, in the two most civilized nations, the Kichas of Peru and the Nawas of Tezcuco. It is related that about the year 1440, at a grand religious council held at the consecration of the newly built Temple of the Sun at Cusco, the Inca Yapanqui, rose before the assembled multitude and spoke somewhat as follows. Many say that the sun is the maker of all things, but he who makes should abide by what he has made. Now many things happen when the sun is absent, therefore he cannot be the universal creator, and that he is alive at all is doubtful, for his trips do not tire him. Were he a living thing, he would grow weary like ourselves. Were he free, he would visit other parts of the heavens. He is like a tethered beast who makes a daily round under the eye of a master. He is like an arrow, 
which must go whither it is sent, not whither it wishes. I tell you that he, our Father and Master the Son, must have a Lord and Master more powerful than himself, who constrains him to his daily circuit without pause or rest. To express this greatest of all existences, a name was proclaimed based upon that of the highest divinities known to the ancient Amorares, Elatisi Viracocha Pachacamac, literally the thunder vase, the foam of the sea, animating the world, mysterious and symbolic names drawn from the deepest religious instincts of the soul, whose hidden meanings will be unraveled hereafter. A temple was constructed in a vale by the senior Kayao, wherein his worship was to be conducted without images or human sacrifices. The Inca was ahead of his age, however, and when the Spaniards visited the temple of Pachacamac in 1525, they found not only the walls adorned with hideous paintings, but an ugly idol of wood representing a man of colossal proportions set up therein and receiving the prayers of the votaries. No better success attended the attempt of Nezahuatl, Lord of Tezcuco, which took place about the same time. He had long prayed to the gods of his forefathers for a son to inherit his kingdom, and the altars had smoked vainly with the blood of slaughtered victims. At length, in indignation and despair, the prince exclaimed, Verily these gods that I am adoring, what are they but idols of stone without speech or feeling? They could not have made the beauty of the heaven, the sun, the moon, and the stars which adorn it, and which light the earth with its countless streams, its fountains and waters, its trees and plants, and its various inhabitants. There must be some God, invisible and unknown, who is the universal creator. He alone can console me in my affliction and take away my sorrow. Strengthened in this conviction, by a timely fulfillment of his heart's desire, he erected a temple nine stories high to represent the nine heavens, which he dedicated to the unknown God, the cause of causes. This temple he ordained should never be polluted by blood, nor should any graven image ever be set up within its precincts. In neither case, be it observed, was any attempt made to substitute another impure religion for the popular one. The Inca continued to receive the homage of the subjects as a brother of the sun, and the regular services to that luminary were never interrupted. Nor did the prince of Tezcuco afterwards neglect the honors due his national gods, nor even refrain himself from plunging the knife into the breasts of captives on the altar of the god of war. They were but expressions of that monotheism which is ever present, not in contrast to polytheism, but in living intuition in the religious sentiments. If this subtle but true distinction be rightly understood, it will excite no surprise to find such epithets as endless, omnipotent, invisible, adorable, such appellations as the maker and molder of all, the mother and father of life, the one God, complete in perfection and unity, the creator of all that is, the soul of the world, in use and of undoubted indigenous origin, not only among the civilized Aztecs, but even among the Haitians, 
the Araucanians, the Leni Lenape, and others. It will not seem contradictory to hear of them in purely polytheistic worship. We shall be far from regarding them as familiar to the popular mind, and we shall never be led so far astray as to adduce them in evidence of a monotheism in either technical sense of the word. In point of fact, they were not applied to any particular god, even in the most enlightened nations, but were terms of laudation and magniloquence used by the priests and devotees of every several god to do him honor. They prove something in regard to a consciousness of divinity hedging us about, but nothing at all in favor of a recognition of one god. They exemplify how profound is the conviction of a highest and first principle, but they do not offer the least reason to surmise that this was a living reality in doctrine or practice. The confusion of these distinct ideas has led to much misconception of the native creeds, but another and more fatal error was that which distorted them into a dualistic form, ranging on one hand the good spirit with his legions of angels, on the other the evil one with his swarms of fiends, representing the world as the scene of their unending conflict, man as the unlucky football who gets all the blows. This notion, which has its historical origin among the Parsis of ancient Iran, is unknown to savage nations. The idea of the devil, justly observes Jacob Grimm, is foreign to all primitive religions. Yet Professor Mueller, in his voluminous work on those of America, after approvingly quoting this saying, complacently proceeds to classify the deities as good or bad spirits. This view, which has obtained without question in every work on the native religions of America, has arisen partly from habits of thought difficult to break, partly from mistranslations of native words, partly from the foolish axiom of the early missionaries, the gods of the Gentiles are devils. Yet their own writings furnish conclusive proof that no such distinction existed out of their own fancies. The same word Otkin, which Father Bruyas employs to translate into Iroquois the term devil, in the passage, the devil took upon himself the figure of a serpent, he is obliged to use for a spirit in the phrase, at the resurrection we shall be spirits, which is a rather amusing illustration how impossible it was by any native word to convey the idea of the spirit of evil. When in 1570 Father Rogel commenced his labors among the tribes near the Savannah River, he told them that the deity they adored was a demon who loved all evil things, and they must hate him, whereupon his auditors replied that so far from this being the case, whom he called a wicked being was the power that sent them all good things, and indignantly left the missionary to preach to the winds. A passage often quoted in support of this mistaken view is one in Winslow's Good News from New England, written in 1622. The author says that the Indians worship a good power called Kiatan, and another, who as far as we can conceive, is the devil, named Habamak or Habamaki. The former of these names is merely the word great in their dialect of Algonquin, with a final N and is probably an abbreviation of Kitanatoet, the great Manitou, 
a vague term mentioned by Roger Williams and other early writers, not the appellation of any personified deity. The latter, so far from corresponding to the power of evil, was according to Winslow's own statement, the kindly God who cured diseases, aided them in the chase, and appeared to them in dreams as their protector. Therefore, with great justice, Dr. Jarvis has explained it to mean the Oki, or tutelary deity, which each Indian worships, as the word itself signifies. So in many instances it turns out that what has been reported to be the evil divinity of a nation, to whom they pray to the neglect of a better one, is in reality the highest power they recognize. Thus, Joripari, worshipped by certain tribes of the pompous of Buenos Aires, and said to be their wicked spirit, is in fact the only name in their language for spiritual existence in general. And Akakanet, sometimes mentioned as the father of evil in the mythology of the Arakinians, is the benign power appealed to by their priests, who is throned in the Pleiades, who sends fruits and flowers to the earth, and is addressed as grandfather. The cupe of the Peruvians never was, as Prescott would have us believe, the shadowy embodiment of evil, but simply and solely their god of the dead, the Pluto of their pantheon, corresponding to the Mictla of the Mexicans. The evidence on the point is indeed conclusive. The Jesuit missionaries very rarely distinguish between good and evil deities when speaking of the religion of the northern tribes, and the Moravian brethren among the Algonquins and Iroquois place on record their unanimous testimony that the idea of a devil, a prince of darkness, they first received in later times through the Europeans. So the Cherokees, remarks an intelligent observer, know nothing of the evil one and his dominion, except what they have learned from white men. The term great spirit conveys, for instance, to the Chippewa, just as much the idea of a bad as of a good spirit. He is unaware of any distinction until it is explained to him. I have never been able to discover from the Dakotas themselves, remarks the Reverend G. H. Pond, who had lived among them as a missionary for eighteen years, the least degree of evidence that they divide the gods into classes of good and evil, and am persuaded that those persons who represent them as doing so do it inconsiderately, and because it is so natural to subscribe to a long-cherished popular opinion. Very soon after coming in contact with the whites, the Indians caught the notion of a bad and good spirit, pitted one against the other in eternal warfare, and engrafted it on their ancient traditions. Writers anxious to discover Jewish or Christian analogies forcibly construed myths to suit their pet theories, and for indolent observers it was convenient to catalogue their gods in antithetical classes. In Mexican and Peruvian mythology, this is so plainly false that historians no longer insist upon it, but as a popular error it still holds its ground with reference to the more barbarous and less known tribes. Perhaps no myth has been so often quoted in its confirmation as that of the ancient Iroquois, which narrates the conflict between the first two brothers of our race. It is of undoubted native origin and venerable antiquity. The version given by the Tuscarora chief, Cusick, in 1825, 
relates that in the beginning of things there were two brothers, Enigorio and Enigohahitkia, names literally meaning the good mind and the bad mind. The former went about the world, furnishing it with gentle streams, fertile plains, and plenteous fruits, while the latter maliciously followed him, creating rapids, thorns, and deserts. At length the good mind turned upon his brother in anger, and crushed him into the earth. He sank out of sight in its depths, but not to perish, for in the dark realms of the underworld he still lives, receiving the souls of the dead and being the author of all evil. Now when we compare this with the version of the same legend given by Father Brebeuf, missionary to the Hurons in 1636, we find its whole complexion altered. The moral dualism vanishes. The names good mind and bad mind do not appear. It is the struggle of Ioskia, the white one, with his brother Tawiskara, the dark one, and we at once perceive that Christian influence in the course of two centuries had given the tale a meaning foreign to its original intent. So it is with the story the Algonquins tell of their hero Manibojo, who, in the opinion of a well-known writer, is always placed in antagonism to a great serpent, spirit of evil. It is to the effect that after conquering many animals, this famous magician tried his arts on the Prince of Serpents. After a prolonged struggle which brought on the general deluge and the destruction of the world, he won the victory. The first authority we have for this narrative is even later than Cusick. It is Mr. Schoolcraft in our own day. The legendary cause of the deluge as related by Father Lejean in 1634 is quite dissimilar and makes no mention of a serpent, and as we shall hereafter see, neither among the Algonquins nor any other Indians was the serpent usually a type of evil, but quite the reverse. The comparatively late introduction of such views into the native legends finds a remarkable proof in the myths of the Kitches which were committed to writing in the 17th century. They narrate the struggles between the rulers of the upper and the nether world, the descent of the former into Zabalba, the realm of phantoms, and their victory over its lords, one death and seven deaths. The writer adds of the latter, who clearly represents to his mind the evil one and his adjutants, in the old times they did not have much power, they were but annoyers and opposers of men, and in truth they were not regarded as gods. But when they appeared it was terrible. They were of evil, they were owls, fomenting trouble and discord. In this passage, which be it said, seems to have impressed the translators very differently, the writer appears to compare the great power assigned by the Christian religion to Satan and his allies, with the very much less potency attributed to their analogues in heathendom, the rulers of the world of the dead. A little reflection will convince the most incredulous that any such dualism as has been fancied to exist in the native religions could not have been of indigenous growth. The gods of the primitive man are beings of thoroughly human physiognomy, painted with colors furnished by intercourse with his fellows. These are his enemies or his friends, as he conciliates or insults them. No mere man, least of all a savage, 
is kind and benevolent in spite of neglect and injury, nor is any man causelessly and ceaselessly malicious. Personal, family, or national feuds render some more inimical than others, but always from a desire to guard their own interests, never out of a delight in evil for its own sake. Thus the cruel gods of death, disease, and danger were never of satanic nature, while the kindliest divinities were disposed to punish, and that severely, any neglect of their ceremonies. Moral dualism can only arise in minds where the ideas of good and evil are not synonymous with those of pleasure and pain, for the conception of a holy good or a holy evil nature requires the use of these terms in their higher ethical sense. The various deities of the Indians, it may safely be said in conclusion, present no stronger antithesis in this respect than those of ancient Greece and Rome. End of section 6